Uh, so we are going to try to pull together the threads of Jeremiah here today with these words. God is preparing a heavenly city. So the question is, how do we invest in that heavenly city? And we'll look at that today. Read, first of all, we're going to do a little bit of reading. Keep your, your book open to Jeremiah uh, 50 and 51. We'll be digging around a little bit there to give you an idea what's going on here. But chapter 50, verses 2 through 5, chapters 50 and 51 are a message to the book out uh, of the nation of Babylon. So here we go. Verse 2. Announce and proclaim among the nations. Lift up a banner and proclaim it. Keep nothing back, but say, Babylon will be captured. Bel will be put to shame. Marduk filled with terror. Her images will be put to shame and her idols filled with terror. A nation from the north will attack her and lay waste her land. None will live in it. Both men and animals will flee away. In those days, at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Judah excuse me, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. They'll ask the way to Zion, turn their faces toward it. They will come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. Let's pray. So Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would, as we examine these passages, this large passage today, we do ask that you give people some grasp intellectually. They have an idea what's going on in your scriptures. But we ask, secondly, that it would help us to see the truth, the lessons, the principles that you are building, and especially that we see how to live it out today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the larger structure of Jeremiah, chapters 46 to 51, uh, gather together all the oracles to the surrounding nations, and they, they run roughly from uh, west to east, kind of the opposite of Isaiah. And uh, so we, in his uh, collection of, of messages of the nations, and, and they're, they're looking at specific things that are happening to various people. So we took kind of a survey of a bunch of the nations, uh, but in these two chapters, we have a message of judgment on Babylon. Now, this is not surprising in the larger biblical picture, but it's a little unusual in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, if you've been kind of paying attention and keeping track of what we said, is Jeremiah largely has counseled cooperation with Babylon, saying God's raised up Babylon to bring judgment. Cooperate and you won't suffer. So this set of messages is a contrast in the larger book of Jeremiah, where here Jeremiah predicts the fall of Babylon, which of course historically happened when the Persians defeated the Babylonians. Now he says from the north, and if you know your geography, then well, wait a minute, you know, Babylon and Persia are really both to the east of Israel, but they're always regarded as from the north, and that's because from Israel's perspective, to get across the Arabian desert, the, the nations always kind of came up and around the Fertile Crescent, and so for Israel, it was always coming from the north. That's why it always says the enemy's from the north, from the north, from the north, because that's how, where they came from, unless they were Egypt. And so uh, that's why it says that. So in chapter 51, verse 43, says this about Babylon. Her towns will be desolate, a dry and desert land, a land where no one lives, through which no man travels, virtually, literally came true. Hot desert, Iraq, we would call it. 
But here, Babylon, now here's what you want to pay attention to, what's going on as we proceed today. Babylon, here in Jeremiah, at this point in these passages, similar to in Isaiah 13, for those that know about that passage, Babylon begins to become not just historic Babylon, but a symbol for the city of man opposed to the city of God. It begins to become somewhat symbolic. So that by the time we get to Revelation 18, Babylon is simply shorthand for the city of man opposed to the rule of God, right? So, so keep track of that today, and we'll, we'll treat it that way. So these chapters talk really about Babylon. As I said, some of these verses talk about what happened to Babylon. Well, they literally came true. It's true. It's not like they're ahistorical, but they are not only about Babylon, but they're really about God's wider judgment of the world system. Now, when I say world, one last piece of background information before we dive in. Some of you know this, but just as a refresher, the word world is used three ways in the Bible. The created world, right? So the created world is, it was created very good, now is fallen, and the created world now, we're told in Romans 8, is groaning for our redemption, the restoration of the world. Then there is in the New Testament the word oikumene, which is often understood in most contexts, the world of mankind, right? The social world, and that being made up of people is a mix of good and evil, because we're a mix of good and evil. But then... And in the New Testament, the word used is cosmos. Now, it can be used various ways, so don't oversimplify here. But often it's used of the evil world system opposed to God's rule. Most famously in John, uh, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, right? Love not the world or anything in the world, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, come not from the Father, but from the world. The wilderness desires pass away. The man who does the will of God lives forever. That's world in the sense of the city of man opposed to the rule of God, okay? So that, that's what, when we say world today, we're not talking about, you know, beautiful creation that Keith mentioned earlier, right? We're not talking about the world of mankind. We're talking about the evil world system, a spiritual world opposed to the rule of God. That's what we're talking about, okay? The world in that way. And this is what God judges. So God's building a city. But how do we invest in that city? Well, there's several ways to invest in God's city that Jeremiah gives us here. The first way to invest in God's city, as basic as it is, is to repent, turn from evil. So look at chapter 51 of Jeremiah. We'll read a few things here, give you a flavor. Jeremiah 51, verses 41 to 44. Uh, Shishak's also reference to uh, Babylon. So here it is. How Shishak will be captured. The boast of the whole earth seized. What a horror Babylon will be among the nations. The sea will rise over Babylon. Its roaring waves will cover her. Her towns will be desolate, a dry and desert land, a land where no one lives, through which no man travels. I will punish Bel and Babylon, their, their god, and make him spew out what he swallowed. The nations will no longer stream to him, and the wall of Babylon will fall. Right? So total devastation. Why? Well, two major sins. One we'll focus on, but two major sins of Babylon. Chapter 50 uh, let's look at verse 11. You could read all around here, and it's, you're going to get the same flavor, but I'm shortening it a little bit, right? So chapter 50, verse 11. Oops, wrong chapter. Here we go. Chapter 50, verse 11. Uh, it says, 
because you rejoice and are glad who pillage my inheritance because you frolic like a heifer threshing grain and neigh like stallions, your mother will be greatly ashamed. In other words, they rejoice in their devastation and pillaging of the people of God. Okay, that's not good. But then in particular, the big sin, chapter 50, verse 29, says this. Summon archers against Babylon, all who draw the bow. Encamp around her, let no one escape. Prepare for her deeds, do to her as she has done. For she has defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Did I read the right verse? Yes, I did. Okay, yeah. She's defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Um, mm, I have a slight mistake here. Okay, it's right. She's defied the Lord, right? The, the, the word I want to use is arrogance, all right? The, the ultimate, read around the passage. The, the issue here is the arrogance of Babylon. So cruelty and oppression are judged, but especially as you read the passage, God will judge all arrogance. The primary sin God is dealing with is arrogance, pride. What is the arrogance of Babylon? It's the arrogance of the city of man. That man, humanity is the measure of all things. That we're the captains of our fate. That we determine good and evil. That we're accountable to no one. This is how Satan fell. This is the root sin. I want you to think about this. Think about your own life for a moment. Every time we sin, we imply that we're wiser than God. We're saying it won't hurt. It'll be fine. Nothing is lost. We know better than the one who created and redeemed us. If you see it, arrogance that we really know better than the designer of our being, that is the root sin. And that is the major issue in Babylon, the city of, of man. Uh, at one point, we'll read it later. I know it's there where you just hold yourself up as a queen of everything. So the first way to invest in the city of God is to repent, to turn from the sin, especially of arrogance. Arrogance is the primary sin. Second way to invest in the city of God is to flee the city of man. Now, this is a subtler one, but it's interesting. Look at uh, uh, chapter 50, verses 8 through 10. He says, flee out of Babylon, leave the land of the Babylonians and be like goats that lead the flock for I'll stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. They will take up their positions against her and from the north she'll be captured. Their arrows will be like skilled warriors who do not return empty handed. So Babylonia will be plundered and all who plunder her will have their fill, declares the Lord. Okay, now if you think about this, this may sound a little odd. Here's Babylon. They're going to they capture Judah. And now God's got to say, flee. And you would think they'd be saying, well, 
Of course, right? Oh, gosh, we can leave. Great, let's go. Let's get out of here. But such was not the case historically. So after being involved in Babylon, 20, 30, eventually 70 years, uh, this exile, they actually, the Jews became quite successful in Babylon. Yeah, they were making money. Truck farming, and they were uh, doing, involved in money trading. And uh, they're making good living. And if you know Ezra and Nehemiah well, most of the Jews did not return, including our hero Esther. <laughs> right? She was one of the people that didn't want to go back. <laughs> okay, whoops, yeah. <laughs> we'll finally preach on Esther this year, by the way. So, okay, it's coming. Uh, but uh, why not? Because they're prosperous and comfortable. When people are kidnapped, we call this the Stockholm Syndrome. Where the captured person comes to love their captor so much they don't want to be free anymore. A lot of real Christians who really trust in Jesus have spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. And they love their bondage. Being loving the one who captured them, relying on the world's system of rewards. So Judah, it was the Persians. The church, it's our world system of economic and social approval. And we bought in. But he says, chapter 51, 6 through 9, flee. Again, it's several times here. Verse 6, flee from Babylon... 51.6, run for your lives. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. See, God's going to judge Babylon. If you're hanging out in Babylon, you're in trouble. It's time for the Lord's vengeance. He'll pay her what she deserves. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore they've now gone mad. Babylon will be suddenly fallen, be broken, wail over her, get palm for, balm for her pain. Perhaps she can be healed. Now, verse 9, focus, verse 9. We would have healed Babylon, but she cannot be healed. Let's leave her and each go to his own land for a judgment reaches to the skies. It rises as high as the clouds. Here is where, in some of these passages, historic Babylon is beginning to become symbolic of the larger city of many. saying it can't be healed. That's the issue. The world's system... Now, what's the world? The world of mankind? No. The beautiful world of nation? No. The evil world system is beyond healing. And so we must flee the world system to the degree that it has grasped our lives. We must slice its tentacles, pull out the roots, and get free. Because it, it cannot be healed. Little bit of New Testament here till you see this. Revelation 18 is the fall of Babylon, and just a couple verses so you get the flavor. You can read it later today if you like. Revelation 18, 3, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. You see, he's virtually quoting Jeremiah, he's using Jeremiah here 
and Isaiah and Ezekiel. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Here, committing adultery probably is not about sexual sin, but about the money, right? You can read it in context, see what you think. Verse 7, give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as a queen. I'm not a widow and I will never mourn. That's the arrogance of the city of man. Verse 17, you could read all of 11 to 17, but verse 17, in one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. And then verse 18, materialism, verse 18, when they see the smoke of a burning, they'll exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city. So we see it here, the sins of the world, excessive luxury, arrogance, materialism, human exaltation. This is the city of man, wealth, luxury, arrogance. Man is the center of all things. Sound familiar? Flee! How do we respond as disciples to this? We have a necessary involvement in the economic system, right? We're not Rechabites. Remember the Rechabites? Those of you here, right? We're not, you know, the, the Amish of the day, right? We're not saying, oh, we'll just hang out on the edge of the system and kind of, no, we're, we're supposed to be in the world but not of the world. But we must flee the materialism. Flee the arrogance. Can I say this and even be understood? 21st century North American Christians. We must flee Excessive luxury. It deadens the soul. How? Live simply. Give generously. Give thanks. What's the opposite of arrogance? Gratitude. Thank you, Jesus, you know, for my wife. Thank you, Jesus, for my friends. Thank you, Jesus, I have a job. can pay the bills. Thank you, Jesus, for everything. Gratitude is the antidote to arrogance. Humbly seek to honor God. It's the no regret lifestyle, right? The no regret lifestyle, give generously, give thanks, honor God in all. I called us earlier to repentance and that's an important word at times in our lives. We're just, we're just trapped and we need to get free. But for most of us, the primary danger is spiritual intoxication, deadness of soul. You're not going to go out and commit some big sin. It's just not you. But it's the intoxication of the world, the deadening of soul, uh, just the, 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 the clinging of the world. You know, <clears throat> I used to say, if you don't need to pray, don't pray. I was joking. But, you know, uh, <laughs> not funny. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but, but, you know, you know, if you don't need to pray, don't pray, right? Hey, the re one reason I pray is to keep my soul from being just saturated with the world. Lord Jesus, open my eyes this morning, right? I'm just so used to the, this, this world and the sin. I just got to get my soul co uh, connected and tuned into real reality here rather than what the world defines as reality. Intoxication, a besotted soul, second way to invest in the city of God is to flee the city of man. One final way to invest in the city of God is to receive God's restoration. Now, we're going to look at two passages, but I want you to see the pattern. It's, it's everywhere in scripture. Look at chapter 50, 
back to Jeremiah, uh, verses four and five. We read them earlier. He's describing he's going to do a new work. In verses four and five, it says, in those days at that time, declares the Lord, <clears throat> the people of Israel and the people of Judah together, they're united again, will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. Right? Mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. They'll ask the way to Zion and turn their faces toward. They'll come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. That's the human side. It's, it's like, okay, all right, Lord, no more Sunday, you know, church only on Sunday, right? This is like all week long. Like, Lord, we're going to live for you. We're going to follow you. We're going to do what we need to do, right? But then here's the other side. Verse 20. I love this. Chapter 50, verse 20. I know it's a lot of scriptures, sorry. <laughs> but hey. In those days at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt. But there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but none will be found. For I will forgive the remnant that I spare. Woo! <laughs> Hallelujah, right? And so you see the two sides? It's like, okay, Lord, we are like, yes, we're serious covenanting with you. But he's like, guess what, man? I'm just going to forgive you. And they won't be able to find your sin anywhere because I'm taking it off the charts. Woo! <laughs> yeah, you got it, got it a little bit. Okay, you're starting to get excited. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So pardon me, but as we're pulling Jeremiah together, I want to just one last time to go back to one of the core passages, Jeremiah 32. It's the same issue. Just look at verses 39 and 40. Because you're going to see the same pattern again. On our side, reverence. On God's side, grace. Okay? So look at this. Uh, verse 39. And I will give to them, literally it's one heart and one way. I like to translate it, one heart and one manner of life. If it doesn't match, don't worry. I'm just freely, freely translating right now. So if I'm off, trust that, okay? But one heart and one manner of life. But what is the one heart manner of life? To fear me all the days. To fear God is a, good, a gift? Yeah. To, in order that I might do good to them and to their sons after them, the children after them. Okay, that's verse 39. Catch those themes, then verse 40. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant, which I will not turn back from after again, in order to do good, in order that I might do good to them. And fear of me, I will give, or I will put in their hearts, I'll give in their hearts to fear me, in order that they might not turn back from me. Now, I got some budding Hebrew students here. So I just want you guys to note, uh, to do good, it's the Hebrew infinitive construct every time. Call in the first one, he feel in the last two, okay? So stare at that, and that's a use of purpose of the Hebrew verb. Okay, now non-Hebrew students, hang, you know, relax, right? But what, what's he, what he's saying is, what is he going to do here? He's saying... God's part, forgiveness, right? Jeremiah 31, 34. They'll all know me because I'll forgive them. But then look at it. What is God's gift? One heart, one way of life. What is that one heart and one way of life? To fear God. 
Oh, fearing God. No, you, Craig, you're, you've been reading the Old Testament too much. What, what do you mean? Okay, so here's some of my meditation notes this morning. I just got going. Here's the conflict. God has one heart and one manner of life for human flourishing. And as a human race, we reject that and rebel against it. We want nothing so narrow. And even more insulting, that manner of life involves to fear me all the days that I might do good to them and their children after them. So when I say fear God, to some people, maybe to some of you, it seems like, you know, I'm back in, in the old covenant, you know, this, this awful, fearful God uh, who demands fear of all things. And, you know, it seems like some kind of primitive religion. But I want to answer that for a moment. If God is truly all-powerful, just, and all-loving, then God has the best for us in mind. He has the power to enforce the best for us. And he has a just nature that he must respond to evil. As your pastor... I beg you to keep in mind that in Christ you are forgiven so you need have no terror, but that one day you will stand before Jesus and you will give account for how you have used the wonderful salvation you've been given, and if that doesn't make you nervous, then I don't know what will. So if you want to call that the fear of God, it's not a negative. It's the nature of the relationship. I mean, use your imagination for a moment. Suddenly, the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe shows up in this room. What are you going to do? Right? You are going to fall on your face. And some of you are going to say, I've been a fool. What was I thinking? Don't worry about being forgiven. You trust in Jesus, you're forgiven. You still give account. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord keeps men from evil. I want you to know God. Jesus wants to set your heart at rest in his presence but not by tolerating what will destroy you. The only way to eliminate fear is to abolish accountability or to abolish guilt. So the forgiven do not indeed cringe in terror, but we still have an accountability for how we use this great gift. One heart and one way of life why? Because reverence leads to a lifestyle that God can bless. When I have a reverence for God and I know I'm forgiven so I'm not paralyzed, then I can begin to walk and yeah, I'll stumble. Oh, Lord, forgive me. And you're forgiven. That's the normal Christian life. Not perfection, but Lord, I'm heading right towards you. Oh, I stumbled. Lord, forgive me. You're forgiven because you're like a little baby. We all are. 
and we're learning to walk. And so you're going to stumble. Just make sure you're aiming for the right thing. Right? If you're aiming for the right thing, there's no fear. There's the redemptive father at your hand saying, I get it. And you know what? We don't all have the same path. We're all heading toward Jesus. But you know what I'm saying? It's like it's a picture of people scattered out all over the room and Jesus is right where Matt is. You know, a great example, right? Okay. <laughs> and so, so my path is different. Can you stand up for a moment, Ava? I know. It's, yeah, like the worst kid to ask this. Or over there. Okay. We're both going to head toward Matt. Okay. You got to go through some chairs, don't you? See, her, I made her path more difficult, right? She's got to get around Keith, right? She's got to do some things that I didn't have to do, but we both wind up by Matt. You see that? So we're all heading toward Jesus, but some of us have a harder path because of where we started out. But that too is in the sovereignty of God. And you may feel like, well, man, I'm not as far as this other guy in the Christian life. You know what? Jesus knows where he started you and your reward is based on your growth in him. You don't compare yourself to another and if you're a discipler, you don't compare people to people. You just help each one to walk the path toward Jesus. And as we begin to walk that path, greater and greater, it's like, pardon me for a moment, I don't do this very often anymore, but it's like the E to the X function. Somebody with me? Anybody with me? Somebody? Okay. Anyway, so E to the X, it's, it's 2.7 something, you know, you know anyway, exponential, but it, it, it's how bacteria grow. Anyway, it, it's like at first you don't think you're getting anywhere. But at about halfway in the journey, I'm about halfway, it starts to accelerate because I'm 62, you know. Okay, and then, whew, right? So the early part of the Christian journey is like the E to the X function. If that doesn't make sense to you, I'm sorry. But anyway, I'll just say it goes really slow, okay? And it doesn't look like much and you don't feel like you're making much progress. But then the momentum begins to occur. Just keep walking, Okay. So here's the key. Do not become discouraged when you're early in the process of transformation. That's the main weapon against younger Christians is discouragement. Well, older ones too. Don't give in to that. All right. So again, two elements God has here. God wants to do good, grace eternally. And then God gives us, remember what we just read in chapter 32, the fear of the Lord is a gift. It's a gift to keep us in the place of blessing. So central theology in Jeremiah, something I want you to take with you as we close the book. God offers gracious forgiveness and actually the needed heart change is also a gift. It's a gift of reverence before God. We need to ask the Lord for that gift. Lord, help me to revere you, to respect you, to honor you. Reverence is the fundamental healing. So the final way to invest in the city of God is to receive God's restoration. So God's preparing an eternal city. We said there really three things this morning. The primary sin is arrogance. The primary danger is an intoxicated soul. And the primary cure is the fear of the Lord. Stand with me, let's pray. I encourage you, if you have a need for forgiveness, just right now, ask boldly receive. It says he confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness, purify us from all unrighteousness. First John 1, 9. And then earnestly ask for the fear of the Lord. 
Let's pray together.